I'm Katrina Daniel. This is Primetime Crime. The chokehold death of George Floyd barely a year ago has opened a floodgate of feelings and opinions worldwide. The murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd, is sure to be riveting. So we're bringing you regular updates with one of the top federal prosecutors in the country, Richard Gregory. Dick was responsible for prosecuting a who's who list of the world's biggest criminals, including drug kingpins, like Pablo Escobar and dictator drug smuggling enabler Manuel Noriega. Dick will have amazing insights and you'll hear those on Primetime Crime, the podcast. This is Primetime Crime, and the Derek Chauvin trial is over, and the jury verdict is in. Guilty on all counts. We have a stellar panel of legal experts here to break this down for us and tell us exactly what happened, why it happened, and what's next. I'm especially honored to have with us my friend and a legal icon, former federal judge Billy Wilkins. Judge Wilkins was the 13th Circuit Solicitor and President Ronald Reagan's first appointment to the federal court. He went on to become a federal judge and then the chief judge of the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Wilkins is now in private practice as a partner in one of the most respected law firms, Nexon Pruitt. Former federal and state prosecutor Dick Gregory and criminal defense attorney Michael Rosen, our well-known and go-to expert guys, as we're analyzing the Derek Chauvin verdict. Judge Peter Cahill addresses the jury after announcing guilty verdicts for Derek Chauvin. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. What I'm gonna ask you to do now is to follow the deputy back into your usual room and I will join you in a few minutes to answer questions and to advise you further. So, all rise for the jury. Judge Billy Wilkins, former prosecutor Dick Gregory and current criminal defense attorney Michael Rosen Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Um, This is an historic occasion. So let's get all of your takes, the three of you, your opinions on this verdict. Judge Wilkins, you're first. Well, I think the, uh, no no question there's going to be an appeal. And I think one of the issues on appeal uh, will be whether or not there's sufficient evidence to support the verdicts of second degree murder and third degree murder. Uh, overriding that, I think, in addition to the verdict, I think there's going to be an effort to set aside the verdict on appeal because the trial judge, whom I, 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 from my observation, did a very fine job during the trial, but did not change the venue and did not sequester the jurors. I think that's going to be a key issue on appeal, and I think there's a lot of merit to the claim the venue should have been changed, and certainly the jurors should have been sequestered, not just during the deliberation, but from the very beginning. Dick, you're next. What are your thoughts? Well, I think this trial was over at the opening statement, and it was a brilliant move to put the uh, tape recording for the nine and a half minutes into the opening statement. I'm amazed the judge allowed that to occur, and the defense didn't raise more objection to it. But I think the trial was over before uh, any witness ever took the stand. That nine and a half minute tape recording is all of the evidence that the prosecution really needed to convict this defendant. And I think that uh, when you open a trial 
and put the defendant in that much difficulty, uh, no matter how many times the judge tells you that it's the government's obligation to prove its uh, case beyond a reasonable doubt, the defense is operating from a negative position throughout the entire trial. And I think looking at the verdict in this case, that that jury was out for a relatively very short time, asked no questions. I think they were convinced of a guilty verdict uh, uh, long before uh, they, they, they ever got to the end of this trial. One of my observations is what plea negotiations took place in this case, which we'll never know, before trial. There weren't any surprises by the prosecution. Uh, they, the defense knew about the video, the defense knew about the witnesses. And I, 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 I wonder, because of the struggle that the defendant had to present a successful defense, why a negotiated resolution didn't take place. I have heard different um, suggestions about what kind of time he's really facing because I've heard some people say that the, the three convictions will lead to potential concurrent sentences. I've seen uh, reports that they're consecutive. And as Judge Wilkins pointed out, there's going to be some issues about the, the if you will, the merger of the three charges, uh, whether or not they can stand uh, separate verdicts and separate sentences, because I think they all stem from one act. And very likely, I think there's gonna be a defense motion to set aside at least two of the three charges. But Judge, I wanted to ask you a question about your comment. So assuming that you're sitting as an appellate judge, which you did for many, many years as chief judge, and arguably you have a very, very strong government state case, where's the line between sequestration and change of venue and the strength of the prosecution's case where they're gonna argue there was no prejudice here because the evidence was so overwhelming, no matter where we tried this case, we're gonna end up with the same results. Of course, that's usually the argument always advanced uh, when uh, these issues are raised. But in this case, you look at what was happening on the street. You look at all of the publicity day after day that was devoted to, uh, to this upcoming trial. And then you have uh, high-level government officials commenting about it. Uh, if you don't vote to convict, there's going to be violence. There's going yes. to be arson over and over again. And uh, you, that's why I say uh, even a change of venue doesn't make it perfect, but it certainly removes the jury, the individual jurors from saying, this is what's going to happen in my community. Uh, and of course, sequestration means that after the jurors qualified, no more evidence is presented to the jury. And I use the word evidence loosely, other than what is said for what's set forth in the courtroom. And so, uh, and that's extremely important. It's always unknown, how did it affect? But of course, there's going to be an attempt by the appellate court to say, weigh it in the balance and say that how much publicity was there? How correct was the uh, comments about, this is what's going to happen unless you do something that we want you to do, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, against, uh, against the evidence that, that, with the videotape there, there was, uh, as I agree with you, there was strong evidence of what happened but whether or not that would result in a verdict of guilty of murder uh, is certainly another question. Judge, I have one more follow-up, if I may. So in 2021, the jurors are sequestered, and what do you do with their cell phones? Take it away from them, allow them to just call home, 
How do you control their ability to search on the internet when they're sequestered? Well, um, as a trial judge, I never had the a need to sequester a jury, but I, as a district attorney, uh, I was involved in a number of trials where the jury was sequestered. And this is the procedure that was always followed. Uh, number one, when the juror was sworn after being qualified after extensive questions, uh, the juror was not allowed to have any communication with anyone other than members of the jury or the officers who were assigned to handle their security. They were housed in a secure facility. They had uh, their meals taken alone. And if they had to communicate with their family, uh, they did so by writing uh, with uh, the notes being passed by the officers to the family member and back to the, back to the juror. They were not allowed to use the telephone. They were not allowed to watch television. Uh, any articles or newspapers uh, were, any um, information was extracted before they were given the newspapers. So it was a pretty, um, pretty severe seclusion, but it was done so to protect the jury from being inadvertently even hearing things that they should not be subjected to. And you're thinking that this is what should have been done in this case, Judge? I would have erred on the side of, um, had I been the trial judge of doing that, Yes. Let me ask you another question. I'm not sure anyone knows the answer to this, but let's say I'm the mayor of the next largest city and they want to move the trial to my city and I'm going, I don't want rioting here. Do I have the option to tell you you can't have your trial in my city? You, you probably have the option to say it, but you don't have the option to control it. <laughs> Katrina, there is an interesting piece of history here. When our jury trial system began in the Middle Ages, they used to put the jury in a closed carriage and carry them on horseback, and the jury would be locked in that closed carriage until they reached a verdict. And so they used to ride around through the streets until they, they uh, arrived at a verdict. Now, I realize we've come hundreds of years from that situation, but the idea was to uh, uh, keep the jury sequestered from any other influence other than their own negotiations. So what's interesting now is, and because the press is so uh, uh, all over this case, and uh, I'm very interested, you know, sooner or later, they're going to get to one of the jurors and try yes, to interview. Yeah. And uh, usually on appeal, on request, jurors are not questioned about their negotiations or what happened in that jury room. However, there have been some very sensitive trials here in, in Florida, uh, one on a very prominent defense attorney who uh, was tried for fraud. And the jurors told one of the lawyers after the, the case was over that they had brought up this defendant lawyer's religion. It was brought up that uh, he was Jewish and, and that uh, there were some negative remarks made. And the case got reversed on that ground. So it will be interesting if one of these jurors says, oh, we heard about the fact that this young man was shot in the street in our city. And uh, there were demonstrations in the street and we talked about it or one or two jurors mentioned it. Uh, that might be enough to reverse this entire trial. Let me take this on a totally different tack, a little bit more personal and certainly not as cerebral. What did you think of the defendant's demeanor? He showed very, what I've seen, he showed very little emotion. And um, that's probably a, a good thing, but uh, his facial features were not um, friendly. 
uh, as, as I could see. And so I think that was a mistake to sit there with just a stone face. Now you don't want to be grimacing and all that kind of stuff, but a stone face connotes to me um, somewhat of callousness uh, and so forth. But I agree with what Dick said too. Uh, um, you know, the fact he did not take the stand, I think was a big mistake in this case, because you had a video. You didn't have to rely upon an eyewitness, so to speak, who tells you what was going on. The juror was right there at the scene in effect. And so with, with uh, the defendant electing not to take the stand and tell the jury what was going through his mind at the time the events that were depicted on the video were being seen by the jury, uh, I think in hindsight, at least, has proven to be a big mistake. How many cases have you ever seen as a judge or prosecuted as, as the, uh, the state attorney, the district attorney, where you had a crime being filmed for nine and a half minutes, staring at the defendant's face during the entire time? Zero. Exactly. And, and, and so his, I mean, none of us have. And so the decision to testify or not, I mean, Monday morning quarterbacking is always the best, but it's almost as if he had no choice. The defense did, I think, the best job they could of trying to find the pieces of the case to put together. But with that length of time, it also would have given the jury a chance to see him and to hear him emote what was going on. It's not just what he said, but it's his face. And so in our last session together, Dick and I were commenting on the fact that, that by taking off his mask during the defense presentation, on one hand, the jury got to see the emotion, which was, again, almost identical. No. To, to, yeah, to the, to, the, to the crime. And so did that help or hurt? I mean, obviously, now we know it didn't help. But um, it's just such an unusual situation to have a nine-and-a-half-minute film of a face during the crime. Um, you know, I'll tell you this, if the case gets reversed, odds are he'll be on the witness stand next time. I agree with that. I was just going to say, commenting about the jury's deliberation and, and it kind of fits in with the uh, failure to sequester the jury. You know, I think the deliberation, at least it was reported, lasted about 10 hours total. And uh, you've got to take into account that uh, part of that time was spent electing the foreperson. I don't know how long that took, but it had to take some time. Um, I never, I never followed that procedure. I always just appointed the foreman or full, full person, uh, to save the, uh, save that time. Um, and, uh, and then of course you think you've got lunch breaks, uh, you've got bathroom breaks. So all of that is part of that 10 hour period of deliberation, which was very, it really, you're talking about seven, eight hours at max that the jury really even talked about this case. But I think some of that can be explained by what, uh, about what you point out, that they were eyewitnesses to the events themselves through the video. Uh, so there was no need to really judge the credibility of witnesses and things that ordinarily takes place during a deliberation by a jury. You, you know, Judge, my defense horns came rising right up when you said you appointed the, the foreperson. Uh, right or wrong, I would have said, wait a second, I'm, I'm objecting to that. You are invading the province of the jury for them to pick the person they want to lead them. <laughs> Anybody ever uh, object to that? No one ever objected to it. And, uh, and, 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 and of course, the objection would not have uh, been successful. Of course, of course Judge. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you one other fast story. There's a, a federal judge now, just deceased, Pete Fay, who is a highly respected judge. And I tried a case in front of him. And at the end of his 
written jury instructions, he said, now the, the, the word verdict means to speak the truth. Let your verdict speak the truth. And the jury walked out the room and I said, judge, their verdict is not to speak the truth. Their verdict is to see if the, the government proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Pete Faye said to me, Mr. Rosen, that's a very fine and valid point, overruled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as far as that got. Hey, Dick, let me ask you a quick question. You're the prosecutor in this case. Are you going to ask for an upwards departure? Oh, I'm sure sure they will. Uh, but but uh, this case, I think it was a smart move on the part of the uh, defense attorney. If the jury convicted the client, I think the defense attorney realized that if they were willing to do that, they would probably up the uh, up the sentence. So I think he left it to, to the judge. And this judge has been very fair and reasonable throughout the trial. And so I think uh, looking at the aggravating factors, he'll do so from a legal standpoint. Now, you know, it's been a number of years since we started uh, doing sentencing guidelines. And so the, the law is that there has to be a finding beyond a reasonable doubt of, of these certain aggravating factors. For instance, there was a nine-year-old girl who testified who was there, and, and uh, so you committed the crime in, in front of uh, a child. But I think she arrived on the scene voluntarily, and I don't think it was like she was put in the middle of the criminal action. And she watched it in a situation where the police officer was not responsible for her being there. So that may be a difficult uh, uh, aggravating factor to use. But I think this judge, based on what I've seen him, him do so far, I, I think the defense attorney probably made a smart decision in leaving it up to the judge. Judge, you're the final arbiter here as Judge Peter Cahill. What are you going to do? Well, uh, I agree uh, that uh, a smart move by the defense was to leave it up to the judge and not the jury, seeing that they'd already returned guilty verdicts three times. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I think the uh, reasonable thing to do in a case like this, of course, and this judge did a, did a real fine job, I thought, and it was impartial, fair, and, and we'll do the same in sentencing. What that sentence will be, I, I really don't want to speculate about, but uh, I'm sure it will be, um, I, I think the chances are great that it will be within the normal guideline range. Judge, you were on the sentencing commission. Yeah. Uh, this is, of course, we are not in a federal system, but we we're on this in the state system, but isn't this the perfect opportunity for the judge in terms of um, any sort of community pressure. And I, 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 you know, it's interesting. I really don't know if they are elected or appointed in Minnesota. It'd be an interesting thing to learn. But I mean, he certainly has ruled straight down, you know, balls and strikes right down the middle, which is all you can ever ask for. Uh, but the guidelines would be a, a strong place for him to rely in imposing a sentence. It would. Yeah, yeah even downward departures or upward departures and, and just, it's the perfect opportunity to use them. Well, even now um, in, in the federal system, the guidelines started out as being mandatory, of course, but now they're discretionary. But uh, even, even with the latitude that federal judges have today, the great, great majority of sentences are imposed uh, within the guideline range of, um, set by the Sentencing Commission. Gentlemen, you all did a really fine job. Is there anything someone else would like to sign off and say? Well, I think this case, uh, Katrina, is, is an amazing case because the entire crime as convicted was recorded. And so uh, it is very rare that you, you ever have that happen. And I think that the biggest problem in this case is 
this police officer, it wasn't like he acted on, on a uh, moment's notice that he that was surprised or that he had one second to think about it. He sat on this victim for nine and a half minutes. He showed no emotion in doing it. And when people were begging him to please get off, he didn't. He stayed on that, that victim even after it was obvious that the man was if not uh, subconscious, he was dead for sure. And and uh, uh, I think that is the real basis of the conviction in this case. And when it comes to sentencing, that is something that this judge is going to look at. You cannot deny the fact that this, this crime is recorded for all time. With all of the pressure that was on this jury in terms of community, in terms of race, in terms of um, what the world was looking at as to the justice system, you got to give, you got to commend them because they, by all appearances, seem to do their job. Judge Wilkins, I was taken by the fact that the judge, at the end of his reading the verdicts, said to the jury, "Go back to your court. Go back to your room. Not only did you do your jury service, but you did heavy duty jury service. I'll go back and speak with you." when we're done. I'm curious what you think he may have said to them. I think he said, uh, as I've done before, I just want to personally thank you for the service, the great service that you've rendered to your community. I know it's been a tough job. Uh, I know it's uh, always difficult to be, to be uh, away from your families, even for a short period of time. Thank you very much for what you've done in your service. And I think it means a great deal to the jurors for somebody to take that special effort to say, thank you. And uh, that's what this judge did. And uh, again, another example of the fact he was a, was a kind of judge that I think that uh, we all hope our judges will, will be and, and conduct a trial as way he conducted this one, uh, except for the fact that uh, I think the sequestration may prove to be a serious error on appeal. Um, and he even said that, which I thought was a little unusual. Yeah. Uh, I think referring to uh, Maxine Waters' statement that- uh, yeah. He told you may very well have grounds for appeal, he said to the defense attorney uh, when the objection was raised, which I thought was a little unusual. Just clarifying your comment, he wouldn't be thanking them for their verdict, he'd be thanking them for their service. That's exactly right, of course. Gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure for me. I hope you've enjoyed it half as much as I did. And I hope I can pick all of your brains again sometime in the very near future. Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.